Chapter Six of the Man Whom the Trees Loved. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Whom the Trees Loved by Algernon Blackwood. Chapter Six. Mrs. Bittacy had never liked their present home. She preferred a flat, more open country that left approaches clear. She liked to see things coming. This cottage on the very edge of the old hunting-grounds of William the Conqueror had never satisfied her ideal of a safe and pleasant place to settle down in. The sea-coast, with treeless downs behind and a clear horizon in front, as at Eastbourne, say, was her ideal of a proper home. It was curious, this instinctive aversion she felt to being shut in, by trees especially, a kind of claustrophobia almost, probably due as had been said, to the days in India when the trees took her husband off and surrounded him with dangers. In those weeks of solitude the feeling had matured. She had fought it in her fashion, but never conquered it. Apparently routed, it had a way of creeping back in other forms. In this particular case, yielding to his strong desire, she thought the battle won, but the terror of the trees came back before the first month had passed. They laughed in her face. She never lost knowledge of the fact that the leagues of forest lay about their cottage like a mighty wall. A crowding, watching, listening presence that shut them in from freedom and escape. Far from morbid, naturally, she did her best to deny the thought. And so simple and unartificial was her type of mind that for weeks together she would wholly lose it. Then suddenly it would return upon her with a rush of bleak reality. It was not only in her mind. It existed apart from any mere mood a separate fear that walked alone. It came and went, yet when it went, went only to watch her from another point of view. It was an abeyance, hidden round the corner. The forest never let her go completely. It was ever ready to encroach. All the branches, she sometimes fancied, stretched one way, towards their tiny cottage and garden, as though it sought to draw them in and merge them in itself. Its great, deep-breathing soul resented the mockery, the insolence, the irritation of the prim garden at its very gates. It would absorb and smother them if it could. In every wind that blew its thundering message over the huge sounding board of the million shaking trees conveyed the purpose that it had. They had angered its great soul. At its heart was this deep, incessant roaring. All this she never framed in words. The subtleties of language lay far beyond her reach. But instinctively she felt it, and more besides, it troubled her profoundly, chiefly, moreover, for her husband. Merely for herself the nightmare might have left her cold. It was David's peculiar interest in the trees that gave the special invitation. Jealousy then, in its most subtle aspect, came to strengthen this aversion and dislike, for it came in a form that no reasonable wife could possibly object to. Her husband's passion, she reflected, was natural and inborn. It had decided his vocation— fed his ambition, nourished his dreams, desires, hopes. All his best years of active life had been spent in the care and guardianship of trees. He knew them, understood their secret life and nature, managed them intuitively as other men managed dogs and horses. He could not live for long away from them without a strange, acute nostalgia that stole his peace of mind and consequently his strength of body. A forest made him happy and at peace. It nursed and fed and soothed his deepest moods. Trees influenced the sources of his life, lowered or raised the very heartbeat in him, 
Cut off from them he languished as a lover of the sea can droop inland, or a mountaineer may pine in the flat monotony of the plains. This she could understand, in a fashion at least, and make allowances for. She had yielded gently, even sweetly, to his choice of their English home. For in the little island there is nothing that suggests the woods of wilder countries, so nearly as the new forest. It has the genuine air and mystery, the depth and splendor, the loneliness, and there and there the strong, untamable quality of old-time forests as Bittacy of the department knew them. In a single detail only had he yielded to her wishes. He consented to a cottage on the edge instead of in the heart of it, and for a dozen years now they had dwelt in peace and happiness at the lips of this great spreading thing that covered so many leagues with its tangle of swamps and moors and splendid ancient trees. Only with the last two years or so, with his own increasing age and physical decline, perhaps, had come this marked growth of passionate interest in the welfare of the forest. She had watched it grow, at first had laughed at it, then had argued mildly, and finally come to realize that its treatment lay altogether beyond her powers, and so had come to fear it with all her heart. The six weeks they annually spent away from their English home, each regarded very differently, of course. For her husband it meant a painful exile that did his health no good. He yearned for his trees, the sight and sound and smell of them. But for herself it meant release from a haunting dread, escape. To renounce those six weeks by the sea on the sunny, shining coast of France was almost more than this little woman, even with her unselfishness, could face. After the first shock of the announcement, she reflected as deeply as her nature permitted, prayed, wept in secret, made up her mind. Duty, she felt clearly, pointed to renouncement. The discipline would certainly be severe. She did not dream at the moment how severe. But this fine, consistent little Christian saw it plain, she accepted it, too, without any sighing of the martyr, though the courage she showed was of the martyr order. Her husband should never know the cost. In all but this one passion, his unselfishness was ever as great as her own. The love she had borne him all these years, like the love she bore her anthropomorphic deity, was deep and real. She loved to suffer for them both. Besides, the way her husband had put it to her was singular. It did not take the form of a mere selfish predilection. Something higher than two wills in conflict, seeking compromise, was in it from the beginning. "'I feel, Sophia, it would be really more than I could manage,' he said slowly, gazing into the fire over the tops of his stretched-out muddy boots. "'My duty and my happiness lie here with the forest, and with you. My life is deeply rooted in this place. Something I can't define connects my inner being with these trees, and separation would make me ill, might even kill me. My hold on life would weaken.' Here is my source of supply. I cannot explain it better than that. He looked up steadily into her face across the table, so that she saw the gravity of his expression and the shining of his steady eyes. David, you feel it as strongly as that? She said, forgetting the tea things altogether. Yes, he replied, I do, and it's not of the body only. I feel it in my soul. The reality of what he hinted at crept into that shadow-covered room like an actual presence and stood beside them. It came not by the windows or the door, but it filled the entire space between the walls and ceiling. It took the heat from the fire before her face. She felt suddenly cold, confused a little, frightened. She almost felt the rush of foliage in the wind. It stood between them. "'There are things, some things,' she faltered. "'We are not intended to know, I think.' 
The words expressed her general attitude to life, not alone to this particular incident. And after a pause of several minutes, disregarding the criticism as though he had not heard it, I cannot explain it better than that. You see, his grave voice answered, there is this deep, tremendous link, some secret power they emanate that keeps me well and happy, and alive. If you cannot understand, I feel at least you may be able to forgive. His tone grew tender, gentle, soft. My selfishness, I know, must seem quite unforgivable. I cannot help it somehow. These trees, this ancient forest, both seem knitted into all that makes me live. And if I go... There was a little sound of collapse in his voice. He stopped abruptly and sank back in his chair. And at that a distinct lump came into her throat, which she had great difficulty in managing, while she went over and put her arms about him. My dear, she murmured, God will direct. We will accept his guidance. He has always shown the way before. My selfishness afflicts me, he began, but she would not let him finish. David, he will direct. Nothing shall harm you. You have never once been selfish, and I cannot bear to hear you say such things. The way will open that is best for you, for both of us. She kissed him. She would not let him speak. Her heart was in her throat, and she felt for him far more than for herself. And then he had suggested that she should go alone, perhaps, for a shorter time, and stay in her brother's villa with the children, Alice and Stephen. It was always open to her, as she well knew. "'You need the change,' he said, when the lamps had been lit and the servant had gone out again. "'You need it as much as I dread it. I could manage somehow until you returned, and should feel happier that way if you went. I cannot leave this forest that I love so well. I even feel, Sophie, dear,' he sat up straight and faced her as he half-whispered it, that I can never leave it again. My life and happiness lie here, together. And even while scorning the idea that she could leave him alone with the influence of the forest all about him, to have its unimpeded way, she felt the pangs of that subtle jealousy bite keen and close. He loved the forest better than herself, for he placed it first. Behind the words, moreover, hid the unuttered thought that made her so uneasy. The terror Sanderson had brought revived and shook its wings before her very eyes, for the whole conversation, of which this was a fragment, conveyed the unutterable implication that while he could not spare the trees, they equally could not spare him. The vividness with which he managed to conceal and yet betray the fact brought a profound distress that crossed the border between presentiment and warning into positive alarm. He clearly felt that the trees would miss him, the trees he tended, guarded, watched over, loved. David, I shall stay here with you. I think you need me, really. Don't you? Eagerly, with a touch of heartfelt passion, the words poured out. Now more than ever, dear. God bless you for your sweet unselfishness, and your sacrifice, he added, is all the greater because you cannot understand the thing that makes it necessary for me to stay. Perhaps in the spring instead, she said with a tremor in the voice. "'In the spring, perhaps,' he answered gently, almost beneath his breath, "'for they will not need me then. "'All the world can love them in the spring. "'It's in the winter that they're lonely and neglected. "'I wish to stay with them particularly then. "'I even feel I ought to. "'And I must.' "'And in this way, without further speech, the decision was made. "'Mrs. Bittacy, at least, asked no more questions. "'Yet she could not bring herself to show more sympathy than was necessary. "'She felt, for one thing, that if she did... It might lead him to speak freely, and to tell her things she could not possibly bear to know, and she dared not take the risk of that. End of chapter 6